terms of music other than doing Come Sail Away, that right? Was, that was amazing. That's like the top <laughs> song for seaworthiness and sailing and that That's sort right. of stuff. So, hey, my name is Greg. I serve as the executive pastor here. Ben and I are thrilled that you're here. Ben is the lead pastor. And a little bit later, we're going to continue the message series on seaworthy. We've been looking at what are the systems that we need to have in place so that we can make, ready, make sure that we're ready for the open seas. So kind of a spiritual checkup making sure that we're all the way ready, nothing's leaking, the motor works, that sort of stuff. So right. like Matt said, so far it's been spectacular. But before that, and really as a tie-in to what we're going to talk about today, Ben and I wanted to spend a few minutes with you and talk about our upcoming nine-year birthday, which is just two Sundays away, I two guess. Two Sundays away, we'll be nine years old. It's September 15th. Now, if you've been around for a while, you know that it's a big deal for us. And in fact, four times a year, we have what are called big days. One of them always falls on our birthday or our anniversary. But we wanted to take just a moment, if you are newer around here, and there are a lot of you since we came into this building, and explain to you why it is that four times a year we have these things called big days. Sometimes we actually don't call them big days. Sometimes we call them things like Orange Sunday or Tailgate Sunday, and we'll create like a spectacular event to get us all really excited about that Sunday so that we'll invite all of our friends and families and co-workers to come be part of what's going on. But we wanted to kind of pull the veil back, show you the behind-the-scenes reason for really why it is that we do those things four times a year. So we're just going to take three, four minutes kind of explain to people why we do big days and what they're all about. Greg, the reason I love big days is because we really do rally around something that's close to the heart of Jesus, making sure that people know that the door is open and they're welcome to be a part of an environment where they can hear what Jesus had to say, consider what Jesus did, and consider the role he can play in their lives. Yeah, the reality is there are a lot of things that followers of Jesus are called to do. And depending on the way you're wired or depending on what you're passionate about, you engage some of those things more than you engage others. I know that because you're like me and everyone else I've ever met. So as a couple examples, some of us really love to study and read our Bibles. And as a follower of Jesus, you all know, no one would argue that that's something that you need to do. And yet the reality is there are others of us who don't necessarily enjoy that process. We may not even like to do it all that much, and yet we still know we need to do it. They're really called Christian disciplines. They are. Another one is prayer. Some of you love to pray, and you don't miss any bedtime prayer or food prayer, but then you also go way beyond that, and you spend maybe an expanded amount of time every day or every other day or a couple times a week in prayer because it feeds your soul and you really connect with God that way. It's kind of just the way you're wired. And then there are others of us that we pray because we need to, because right. it is a discipline and we know it's a way that we can kind of just give our hearts to God and make ourselves receptive to whatever he wants to say. That's just a Christian discipline. Right. Well, there's another discipline, though, that gets a lot less airtime, and it is the discipline of evangelism, really inviting people to come into a relationship with Jesus. Some of you, because you're wired that way, do that with great ease. It's very easy for, for you to strike up a conversation with someone around the water cooler at work and begin an important spiritual conversation that at some point over time might lead to some serious talk about God and whether they're in a relationship with Jesus and those sorts of things. And then others of us don't do that so well. Maybe we're afraid to do it. Maybe our work environment isn't conducive to that. Maybe we don't know our neighbors that we live beside very well and we don't want to strike up those sorts of conversations. And yet, like reading your Bible and like prayer, that really is still a discipline that whether we like it or not, we need to be doing as growing followers of Jesus. 
And so four times a year, we come to you and say, let's lean in together as a corporate body, as a congregation, as a family around this discipline of evangelism. And that's really what big days are. Right. Four times a year, we say, let's do this together. If you love it and if you hate it, or if you fall somewhere in between and rally around that discipline, not so much so that we can get a ton of new people here, but more so that our hearts and our lives can be transformed as we obey God, which is what we're called to do and practice spiritual disciplines. Greg, you know, if you're wired for prayer and I got up here every Sunday and I said, pray, 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 you're sitting there for going, amen, pastor. Or if you're wired to read your Bible and I said, read your Bible, read your Bible. But if that's not the way you're wired, and if that doesn't come easy for you, then that begins to feel like a burden. So what we've done with the gift or with the discipline of evangelism is we have said to people, rather than coming in every week and just pounding that thing, what if we rallied four times a year and turned the temperature all the way up? You can't do everything important every day. Everything can't be important or else nothing is. So four times a year, we ratchet up the temperature and say, what if we all got serious about inviting our friends to an environment like this where they can hear the claims of Jesus with clarity and consider what he wants to do in their life and what they're willing to let him do? Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what people are going to get on September 15th. It's what they get on every big day. The reality is they get that every Sunday through Next Bold Step A. But there's a real clear gospel message that's going to be presented. If you're already a follower of Jesus, you're going to love it. You're going to be going, yes, that's exactly what I did, and that's exactly what I want for my friends who don't know Jesus. So we're going to do that. We're going to have terrific music. We're going to be kicking off a brand new message series called Love Does. It's going to be about, really, um, outreach and what are you and your family specifically doing about that. Not so much what is our church going to do, but what are you doing to make outreach a regular part of your uh, spiritual walk. That's going to be great. But the reality is, instead of this time coming to you and saying, we're going to have a tailgate party because football's kicking off, or we're going to have a Sunday that we're going to call Purple Sunday this time because we've already done orange green and green. Green and orange, that's right. right. Yeah. Um, instead of doing something that really tries to get you excited around some kind of great event, we want to just do it the old-fashioned way and get you excited, if you can, about evangelism, and if you can't, challenge you to do it anyway. Now, next week, we're going to spend some time talking about really the reward side of that yeah and how if you can get your lost friends to come to a church like this or another church that preaches the gospel and is a good healthy place to be their lives over time can really be transformed so we're going to hold up a couple of testimonies around that value as kind of just an incentive for you and today we're going to talk a little bit about evangelism but we wanted to in the first few minutes just kind of pull back the curtains on what it is we're actually trying to do and just let you because you're part of us already and on the inside secret. Now, I was sharing with the team huddles this morning, both the ones that kind of do everything in this room, including the band, and some of the ones that serve in kids, about what I think is the, the greatest part of God's story as it relates to humanity um, since it all started. There, there are two major parts to the God story. The first one is, it's the best, but it's right now, for this phase of my life, it's not my favorite one, but it's, it's spectacular. It is the gospel, right? Because of grace, not because of what we do, God allows us through a relationship with Jesus to be saved, right. both here on this earth and for eternity. The second part of his plan, though, that's unveiled all throughout Scripture is that he wants us to do his work in this world. He wants you to do it, and he wants me to do it. Yeah. It's amazing to me because I know myself, right, and I'm not perfect. I, have, I don't deserve to have the opportunity right. to the work of God. Right, and when I think about I get a partner with God in doing his work in this world, I know I don't live up to it. I know that somehow he's so much better than me and I immediately am aware of my sins and yet 
That's the beauty of it, right? He doesn't call us to be perfect. He calls us to try, and then he comes alongside of us and empowers us in our weakness. And so really, what we're asking you to do is partner with God in doing his work in this world. And one of the ways you can do that is by inviting your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, anyone you come in contact with, to come to church with you if this is a place that you love. And so that's coming up. You're going to explore that idea a little bit today. I am. We'll unpack it more next week. That's right. So our big day, our nine, uh, ninth birthday, and instead of ex- asking for a gift for ourselves, ultimately what we're trying to do is give a gift to our community. They may not even know what they're being offered yet and come here and discover the greatest gift the world's ever, ever heard. Exactly. All right, we're going to begin uh, the last week of our Seaworthy message series, and we are talking about evangelism today. And I don't want you to get up your guard, because again, if you're wired this way, you're like, yeah, this is what church is all about. And if you're not wired this way, you think, man, you know, I'm going to feel a little bit of guilt because I'm not doing it all. But that's okay. Every week you hear me say something like this, and I, what, what I want to do uh, over the next few minutes is explain, I think, our heart. And you heard kind of our method of what we're going to do and how we're going to try to live it out, but I want to back up just a little bit and explain a little bit of our heart for what around here we often call not-yet-Jesus followers. Uh, I'm not willing to declare anybody as a not-Jesus follower fully. I believe that every single person that's ever walked the face of this earth, I really believe this, can have a relationship with Jesus. And, and if in some theological framework that's not allowed, I do know that the Bible's very clear that our role as followers of Jesus is to make sure that that offer is extended, that the message of the gospel is clear to every person so that God can work in their lives and do what he wants to do fully. And so today, we're just going to pull back the veil, not just on our methodology that we just explained, but a little bit about our heart. And so if you have your scriptures and you want to go with us today, go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and hold your finger there. The words for that passage will be on the screen when we get there. And then we're also going to look a little bit at Luke chapter 5, and those words won't be on the screen, and make a little bit of comparison. Now, there's a funny story to me in the Bible. It's funny not in the sense of ha-ha-ha, but it's funny in the sense of it's odd. When I read the Bible, in fact, this, this passage used to trip me up. And it's right about the heart of evangelism. It's right there in Matthew chapter 4. It's one of those stories that when I read it, I go, I know this is right because it's in the Bible. And yet it just sounds not right to me. Um, it, 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 I hope you can allow your pastor to struggle emotionally a bit with a, a few of the texts in the Bible and just go, ah, I don't know if I really like that or not. I want us to look today at that passage and, and explore some of the tension in it. And in that tension, as we explore it, I think what we're going to get is, I think, a significant nugget, a significant nugget of theological, or if you like the word, biblical truth, that if we'll grab hold of it, it will literally begin to do a powerful work in our lives. We'll see God's heart for people in a different way, but not just his heart for people, which I think you already know what it is. He loves people. But not only will we see his heart, we're going to see the way he actually tries to walk that heart out and how he calls us to do it as well. So let's jump in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And as you're, again, finally getting there in your Bibles or on the screens when we get to it, let me set you up. Jesus is just beginning his ministry. The book of Matthew is written by a guy by the name of Matthew. That's why it's called Matthew. And Matthew had a Jewish background. And the Jewish people he was writing the story of Jesus to, that's why it's called a gospel, it's the story of Jesus who brought good news. The people he was writing to was primarily a Jewish audience, and they had a long heritage of faith. They understood God's stuff. Talking about God and talking about the work of God wasn't foreign to them. And so Matthew, when you read his gospel, 
one of the unique pieces of literature contained in the book we call the Bible. When you read Matthew's gospel, you get an interesting perspective because he's assuming that you know a lot of stuff, not you necessarily, but the people he originally wrote to, a group of Jewish followers of Jesus trying to get them to understand the full story. So he takes a lot of shortcuts. He has a lot of assumptions. And sometimes when I read Matthew's gospel particularly, I get a little tripped up because it just seems to me to leave out a lot of detail, and I think that you're going to see that right here. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, here's what it says. From that time on, by the way, the time on was from the time that John the Baptist was arrested. The early story of Jesus contains a story of a guy named John the Baptist who helped prepare the way for Jesus. And from the time John the Baptist gets arrested and put in prison and can't do his ministry anymore, Jesus' ministry really takes off like a rock. And I mean, he's, he's everywhere doing everything. So from the time that John was arrested on, Jesus began to preach. And then Matthew sums up Jesus' message in one sentence. Here it is. He says, repent for the kingdom for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we get our first big church word of the day. Repent. Now, this is not a word that we use a lot, but when, when the Bible translators were taking the Greek words that the Bible was originally written in, when Matthew wrote his words in Greek, and they were translating them into English beginning in about the 1400s and again in the 1500s and then King James in the 1600s and then all the way up through like the 1970s and 80s when the NIV version of the, of the Bible, the best-selling English translation was done. This word repent has fallen on hard times, I like to say. Originally, the word simply meant to turn, to have a change of heart to be going in one direction and to turn and go in another, usually because of some emotional or internal, intangible compulsion to change. The idea was that somebody would be going this way and saying, oh, if I keep going this way, I'm going to run into a wall. I will turn and go this way. They would have a change of heart. Jesus began his ministry with the primary message of have a change of heart because God's kingdom has come near to you. Matthew doesn't take a lot of time to explain what all these words mean because he knows his primary audience, his original audience that he originally wrote this letter to. I don't know that Matthew ever knew that we'd be reading his letter, his story, uh, you know, 2,000 years later. He wrote this and he knew that people understood this basic idea of repenting, having a change of heart, and instead of walking away from God, turn and begin to walk towards him. And all, that offer from Jesus was extended to people who on the surface looked like they were right next to Jesus, like their behavior, the way they acted, the way they thought, the way they talked, the way they interacted with people looked a lot like Jesus, and they just had to turn a little bit and begin to follow him. Or people on the other end of the spectrum who were so far away, it looked to us at least, it looked from the outside looking into, the, into their lives as if they were about as far away from God as you could ever be. They also were given the same opportunity to quit going away from him and turn and start walking to him. Now, if this was Jesus' primary message, according to Matthew in, in, in the Bible, in verse 17 of chapter 4, it's interesting to me what happens in the very next verse. There's a gap to me. Verse 17 to verse 18, and here's what it says. And as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, now it's not just a lake, it's a huge body of water. Most of Jesus' ministry happened within 15 miles of the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers Simon called Peter, and that's important. We know him primarily as Peter. Uh, if you have a Catholic background, um, you'll acknowledge that Peter was the one that Jesus spoke to. And he said to, to, to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. 
right? That's the Peter we're talking about here. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake. They were, they were fishermen. That's why they did that. That's what the Bible tells us. They were casting a net into the lake, and then the statement of the obvious, for they were fishermen. And then verse 19, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once, verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed him. Matthew tells us that Jesus' message is to repent and turn towards God because the kingdom of God is now available. It's drawn near. It's close. It's approachable. The barriers have been torn down. You can actually be a part of the kingdom. But then when Jesus goes out and begins to teach this message, the words he used, and this is going to be important for us. Don't miss this. You can skim over this story, and I think you come to a different conclusion than what I think the Bible is trying to get followers of Jesus to do, what Matthew and Luke and John and Paul are trying to get the followers of Jesus to do. The message is repent, but Jesus invites people to follow. Jesus doesn't leave the beginning of Matthew chapter 4 where John has been put in prison and his basic message is turn towards God because God is close. He doesn't leave that reality and then walk over here and say what I think would be the most logical thing for him to say if that's his message. He doesn't look at people and say, repent. He doesn't do that. He doesn't look at people and say, turn away from your sin and turn towards me. That's not where Jesus begins his message. That's ultimately his message but it's not where he begins his message. He begins his message with the phrase, I'm not making this up, by the way. That's why I put the words on the screen so that you could see it straight from the pages of God's word. He, his point is to get people to repent, but he begins with the invitation to follow him. That's strange to me. Just as an outside observer who if I didn't know the background of the story, if I didn't know that there was more stuff, it's odd to me. And then there's another odd piece of it. When Jesus says to Peter and to his brother Andrew, who are casting their nets into the sea for they are fishermen, to drop everything and follow him, that's exactly what they do. They drop everything and they begin to follow Jesus. It doesn't tell us whether or not they repented in, in a you know, theological sense. In a spiritual sense, it just says that they began to follow him. And usually when this message was preached to me as I was growing up, and even sometimes in other spiritual Christian church environments, it would go something like this. The point would be that unless you're willing to drop everything and follow Jesus, you really can't be a part of what he's offering. If Jesus isn't Lord of every part of your life, he's not Lord of any part of your life. And I understand exactly what the point is, and that truth should be explored on some level in your heart and in your mind. But when you look at what Jesus actually did as he went around asking people to repent and draw close to God, to quit going the direction they're going and turn towards him, the primary thing he invited people to do was to follow him right where they were. Not get everything cleaned up, not get their life in order, not wash up, not put on Christian garb, not change their language, not quit associating with us. He invited them, no matter where they were, to begin following him. This is the key to understanding, I believe, God's heart for people. To look at how he treated them and what he invited them to do. 
Do you realize that every single person that Jesus interacted with was a sinner? Every person he looked at and said, come follow me, was a sinner. They were far from God. They were broken. Every person he looked at, every person he talked with, when he asked Peter and Andrew to follow him, they didn't believe that he was the son of God at that moment. Now, at some point, they will. But at the moment they're invited to follow, they don't believe. They're unbelievers. They're sinners. And he says, not repent and turn and get it right and get me in my right place and put me in charge of your life. He looked at them and he says, follow me. Begin right where you are as a sinner, as an unbeliever, and follow me. And here's our basic truth for today. I'm going to continue to tease out for a few minutes. Religion says, change and you can join us. Get it all right, get cleaned up, keep your cussing and cigarettes and smoking and adultery at the door, and then you can join us. That's what religion says. Get everything in a line completely, I think we rally around in some regard, this word, it's good-hearted, we mean well, change and you're going to be a part of us. But when you read what Jesus actually did in the Gospels, it wasn't that. Religion says change and you can join us, but Jesus says, and here it is, join us and you'll change. Religion says change to be a part of us. Get it cleaned up. You have your work self and your church self. You have the self you are around your buddies that you went to high school with, and then you have the, the you that you need to be to really be accepted by us. Friends, that is death. That is spiritual death. It's relational chaos. It's emotional burdens. That's why Jesus came to set us free from that kind of junk. It's interesting how those of us that are good-hearted and want to follow Jesus so easily fall into the trap that religion has set for us. You can be a part of us if you talk like us, look like us, believe like us, think like us, act like us. Go to the places we go to, avoid the places we go to. Vote like us, don't vote for the guys that don't, we don't vote. That's religion. Jesus says, join us, be a part of us. Just start where you are. Don't have to take a bath spiritually, probably even physically, although we would appreciate it if, if you do sometimes. Um, but that, that's not a theological statement. That's just, you know, common courtesy. Um, Jesus says, join us and you'll change. And, and let me make this quick. There's a huge difference. A huge difference. And if we take the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seriously, as opposed to just using them to reinforce what we already believe, if we take them seriously, then every believer in Jesus, all of us in the room who have put our faith and trust in him, and by the way, if you haven't yet, because you thought we were overly religious, I just invite you to hang around us for a while and discover that we're not, that we can be pretty irreligious around here sometimes. Just discover how irreligious we can be sometimes. Our heart for people, Jesus' heart for people, the, the reason we started this whole church to begin with nine years ago wasn't so that we could get a group of people and experience some kind of homogeny between us all, where we all look and talk and dress and act the same and that's not every church's mission. 
It was the mission, I believe, given to us by Jesus, but not every church lives it out fully. You can go to a lot of churches in this town where everybody looks, talks, and acts, and thinks, and votes, and uh, engages the culture in exactly the same ways, or at least they do on the surface. But here's what we have to keep in mind about Jesus, and I'm hoping that if you haven't understood this, you get it today, that Jesus doesn't expect you to be perfect. He just wants you to begin following him no matter where you are. And this is radically different. The reason a lot of people have given up in their mind on God is they have fallen out of love with his church. Not the church that's healthy and vibrant and alive, but the church that has mistakenly, maybe even unintentionally, fallen into that religious trap that said, really, before we accept you fully, you've got to look like us. You've got to believe like us. You've got to think like us and talk like us and sing like us and like our songs and know exactly when we change the key, when to throw your hand up in worship. We've made it seem like, I believe, way too easy for people to think that what we're really trying to get them to do is cash in their intelligence, their questions, their challenges at the door, put on some facade, and then when they get it exactly right, they can be a part of us. But when Jesus went around giving people an invitation to change the way of their life and to get close to God, he didn't beat them up with where they were. He began with this idea. Just start following. And then Peter and Andrew dropped everything to follow him. Being a sinner doesn't disqualify you from following. Every person Jesus asked to follow him was a sinner. And many of them began to follow him even as they were sinning. Being an unbeliever doesn't disqualify you from beginning to follow Jesus. Every single person that Jesus invited to follow him, not one of them believed he was the Son of God. Not on the front end. And yet they were still invited freely to follow him. Following almost always begins with a sinner, an unbeliever, taking one small step. Following almost always begins. I think if you're honest about your own spiritual journey, and maybe I'll be able to give you some words here in just the next few minutes to to, to connect it all together, you would admit after reflection that this has been true of your life. That you were an unbeliever, or maybe you'd say it this way, you didn't fully believe. And that you had active sin patterns in your life. Or maybe you like it this way better. You just weren't perfect. And yet God invited you to begin to follow him. And and since Jesus isn't walking around on the earth anymore, he, he typically invites people to follow him because other people who are already following him extend the invitation that was extended to them. Following almost always begins with a sinner and an unbeliever taking a step. Because what God wants to do, I think, in the minds of every church person who actually experienced it the way I'm talking about, but somehow has transmuted into a different way of understanding the way faith works, he wants to destroy the idea that religion says, change and we'll accept you. While Jesus says, just begin to follow and you're going to change. And there's a huge gulf between the two. 
Now, the interesting thing about the Matthew chapter 4 story is that the gospel writer Luke tells the same story, but he fills in details that Matthew assumes. And when I read Luke's account, it makes so much more sense to me why it was that here's Peter and Andrew fishing, and one day the guy in sandals walks by and says, hey, stop fishing, just come follow me. And they're like, hey, Dad, see ya, we're, we're out of here. Tell Mom we said, love her. And they turned and walked. That just seems almost odd to me, the, the way Matthew tells it. So Luke, who tells us that he went and he found out all the details of his story. When you read Luke chapter 1, he says, I went out and did a thorough search of all the stories, and I've now put it together so that you can believe. When Luke tells the same story of Peter and Andrew turning towards Jesus, we get a slightly different picture. And here, in this story of Luke, you begin to see exactly why, if Jesus wants people to repent, he invites them to follow him to be accepted right where they are and to be a part of his group before they make a single change. So, won't be on the screen, just there in your Bible, Luke chapter 5. Let me tell you the story from the pages of God's Word. Luke chapter 5, verse 5 says this, One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, the lake of Genesaret, which is its other name, the people were crowding among him and listening to the Word of God. All right, so... Matthew says, Jesus just walking along, he calls out to Peter, and he says, hey, drop your nets, come follow me. Peter's like, see you, mom, see you, dad, I'm out of here. Luke begins to fill in the details and says, all right, here's what's going on in the backstory. Jesus is near the lake, where the fishermen are, where the crowds are, and he's teaching. He's preaching. He's giving people content. Here's something I've discovered. That for people to begin to follow Jesus and ultimately repent What normally happens is there's some kind of content that they're considering. The Apostle Paul is trying to make sense of this. And in one place, Paul writes these words. He says, faith, believing in Jesus, faith begins with the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And the story of Peter and Andrew, where Jesus is going about trying to get people to repent and come near the kingdom, to accept what God has for them, and he says to Peter and Andrew, follow The story, the backdrop is, is that they are on their boats near the sea, hearing Jesus teach God's word. And something, it doesn't tell us this, but something's happening to them as they hear God's word being taught. They're in a learning environment. They're given an opportunity to think and consider and reflect on truths that paint the world maybe different than the way they had seen it. They give them a slightly different perspective of themselves, a slightly different perspective of their choices, a slightly different perspective about God. And they're hearing these words of Jesus, and little by little, God's Spirit is doing His work in their lives. The people were crowded there, and they were listening to the Word of God. Verse 2, He saw at the water's edge, Jesus saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who, by the way, is who? Peter. He's Simon Peter. Jesus gets into one of the boats, and then he asks Peter, who doesn't know him, but he's been listening to him for the last several minutes, hey, would you put out just a little bit by shore? Just just get me out in the water just a few feet. And then the Bible says, then he sat down in the boat, and he taught people from the boat. Now, we don't know if Peter's with them in the boat or Peter's just watching this guy he doesn't really know who teaches well and got his interest. 
and he's just watching it from the story, going, uh, please don't ruin my boat. We don't really know, but the backstory of come follow me and they leave their nets, here it is. The word of God is being taught. It's chipping away at their assumptions. They're in a learning environment. They're having an opportunity to ask questions. And then Jesus asked Peter to give a little bit of effort, inconvenience himself just a little bit, and let him take his boat and push it offshore. And from that perspective, he begins to continue to teach. He continues to teach, but Peter now has participated in the activity. He's allowed Jesus to have his boat. And verse 4 says this. I'm just reading from Luke chapter 5. When he had finished speaking, Jesus taught the crowds. When he finished talking to them, he said to Simon, who is Peter, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, verse 5, Master. Now, the word master there doesn't, isn't acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. Master is, is the word rabbi or teacher or like a like spiritual Jedi, if you will. And there are a bunch of them in this culture. Walking around teaching, Peter acknowledges you have insight. You're like the master of spiritual stuff. He's not necessarily saying I buy into it, but he says to to Jesus, verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Right? I mean, you, you've got my attention. You're already in my boat. I'll let down the nets. Verse 6. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners. They weren't very far off the shore in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he then fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. All right, not, no longer spiritual Jedi in some general sense. He calls him Lord. This is getting very close to this idea. Turning towards God and who God is and accepting his full work in your life. He, Simon Peter gets on his knees in front of Jesus, a position of humility and brokenness, and he says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And this is one of where Peter began. He began as a fisherman. And when Jesus said, you know, let me push your boat out from the shore a little bit so I can see, I bet Peter had to clean up his beer cans and turn off the radio and like all fishermen do when they go out. But here we are after he has heard, after he has participated a little, after he's been challenged to do something bold, like go out and fish again when you haven't caught anything, let's try one more time. And when he's responded to all of those things, and then there's a breakthrough. At the breakthrough, Peter says, oh, you're the Lord, and I'm a sinner. You're the Lord, and I'm a sinner. Get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Verse 9, for he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore. They left everything and followed him. Matthew says, Jesus was walking by and said, hey, follow me. They got in line. Luke says, no, no, here's the deal. There's a process here. 
Matthew doesn't have to. He's got Jewish audience. People understand. You just respond to God's stuff. Luke's writing primarily to a Greek audience, and they're wondering, logically, how does this make sense? And so Luke takes time to expose for us a process. I don't think it's all that different for most people today. There's something powerful about an environment where people can hear God's stuff and think about it and reflect about it and ask their questions. It's what makes small groups so powerful when people have spiritual conversations. It's what makes a, a church environment, a sermon, so powerful when people can hear God's word. Something happens to their faith. Long before they even buy in, long before they begin to repent, they are already beginning to be in an environment close. That's why four times a year we say to you, what would it look like if you invited your friends to just come and be a part of this thing? Knowing that they're going to experience from us a certain amount of friendliness and love and acceptance right where they are. And we're not going to beat them down. No, we're going to give them an environment where they can think and reflect. Where they can ask questions. By the way, if you're in a religious environment and you're not allowed to ask questions and express doubt and have concerns and wonder how it makes sense, let me just give you some advice. Run away. We call those groups cults. Every religious environment believes what they believe, but some religious environments encapsulate the heart of God and give people a chance to hear that belief that they hold passionately, but ask questions and reflect and think and consider over time, and that time is valued and those people are honored in that thing. You can't rush people through it. But you have to make sure that the environment that you invite them to be a part of welcomes them and welcomes their questions. Here's something I've observed. This is not explicit in the Bible, but I think it's true. I think it's an observable truth. It's certainly biblical in principle. There are four primary stages of following Jesus, I think. And the first one is like listening and learning, considering, often from a distance. They'll sit on the back row. They'll sit with their friends, but they don't really want to engage, have a hard time making eye contact. If the room's too bright, (laughs) they may not even show. They don't want people to see them there. But they're listening. They're in the environment. They're considering. Something catches their attention. There's a common experience in life discussed, but in a Christian, in a Jesus environment, we're asked to consider what Jesus has to say. And for the first time in their life, often people will find themselves saying, well, I, I, wonder, I wonder how Jesus would respond to this. I wonder what the Christian thing to do. I wonder how those church people, and they're challenging in their own minds their assumptions and the way they act, and they're being called to something more. And often they don't even know it because it began by being accepted right where they were, and then they were given an opportunity to think and reflect about what they were hearing. And they were given room and space Listening and learning. Step two. They take a small, inconvenient step. A small, inconvenient step. Peter, would you, would you push out from the shore? <laughs> okay, I, I guess. And now he's engaged on a new level. He's participating, but he's not on board. I mean, he's not on board theologically with Jesus at this point. But he's participating It's why around here you'll find a lot of unbelievers and sinners helping lead the church in the sense that they hold doors. Every person that holds a door opens a sinner. I'm picking at you door holders and greeters. Of course you are. All of us began there. 
Many of us didn't stay there. We became sinners saved by grace. But they got to be a part long before they fully bought in. We had people in almost every level of this church other than senior leadership who have some area in their life that isn't fully dedicated to Jesus, where they're not fully on board, where they still have questions and doubt. And even our most senior leaders have learned, even where I have doubt, and we all have it on some level, I now submit that to Jesus. But it isn't like it's all gone, but they still get to be a part of what we're doing. Why do we do that as a church? Because we've lowered the standards? No, 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 no. Because we're trying to get people to repent in the same process that Jesus did by accepting them right where they are into our group and then giving them a chance to follow. It starts with listening and learning often and then taking a small, inconvenient step. And then number three, allowing Jesus to do something unusual in one area of your life. Some, at some point they break down and maybe it's in their marriage, maybe it's in their vocation, maybe it's in a relationship or in their money. They break down and they say, I'm going to try it. I'm going to actually do the thing. And it takes work and effort, and it's a big thing to them. And they do it. And you know what often happens when they lean in relationally on some biblical principle, or they lean in in, in their marriage on some biblical principle, or they lean in professionally with some biblical principle? They discover that the words of Jesus are weighty and true, and that they matter, and they can make a difference. And in that one area of life where it was more than just a small step, but they stepped out big, God shows up. And he begins to confirm that the words they were hearing have truth and weight and meaning. And it begins to get personal. And they don't know it, but they've been following him. Because following begins by just listening and considering. In fact, you may not even be a Christian in this room today, but you've already taken your first step to following him. You're listening and considering the ways of Jesus. And you may not even be fully on board, and we're okay with that. They listen and they learn. They take a small, inconvenient step. They allow Jesus to do something unusual in some area of their life. And then finally, number four, they begin to surrender all aspects of their life to him. They left their nets and followed him. Not just Peter, but Andrew. And not just Peter and Andrew, but James and John, their partners. It had a ripple effect through their lives. Because when Jesus calls people to repent and turn towards God and accept the good news, he opens his arms first. And when churches get this right, they help destroy a significant dysfunction that exists in our culture. And they bring truth and life. And they prove that, yes, religion says change and you can join us. But Jesus' people say, join us. Go ahead, start right now. And you're going to change. And they know that there's a huge difference. I want to walk you through about seven ways, literally, boom, 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 that we as Four Corners try to, try to live this out. We're not perfect. But we wrestle. We want everybody here turning away from sin and towards God. Their sinful nature, their sinful choices, the impact of their sin, and full devotion to the Lord of the universe. But very few people hear the word repent and actually do it. Most of us began to follow Jesus without even realizing that we're doing it. And one day we woke up and went, woo, guess what? I guess I'm a Christian. That's exactly what the first person that ever came to Jesus in the life of this church said to me as we're sitting at Panera. We sat down to eat for lunch. I thought we were going to have a long, serious conversation. He says to me, hey, I'm ready to do it. And I said, do what? 
He said, well, you know, this whole Jesus thing. I was like, oh, I don't really know what you're talking about. He said, you know, you've been talking about accepting Jesus. I'm ready to do it. Like, oh, right here, right now. Oh, God's man of faith and power just missed the obvious. I have no idea what he's talking about. So right there in the middle of Panera, I said, sounds like, like you're already there. Do you, I walked, do you believe you're a sinner? Yeah. You believe you're a sinner? Yep. You resurrected from the dead? Covered, yep. All right, all right let's, let's just seal this with a prayer. I just prayed I didn't know what else to do. He was already there. It had already happened over time. How? Because he got to be a part of us. He had got to be honest about his junk. He got to be a part. He, he was serving in an environment. He wasn't leading or preaching, but he was serving in an environment. So here's how we try to do that. Number one, just to give you an idea of why it is safe for you to invite your sinners and unbelieving friends and family. First of all, we don't tailor the content of our services for unchurched people, but we do tailor the experience. We don't ever dumb down content. We're never going to compromise God's word. We're always going to go deep, always. But we don't expect people to keep pace with us fully. So what we do is we begin to tailor the experience of this room to make sure that we always have hooks to grab their attention and interest. We're not going to theologically compromise. We're not going to biblically compromise. We are going to reach out to where they are. And so on occasion, we're going to sing, come sail away. And honestly, some people are going to be like, man, waste of time, waste of time, waste of time. Theologically, waste of time. Awesome. Do it. I suggest you get a sign, go out on the street corner, and tell people to repent. It's okay. Nothing wrong with that. I bless your heart. If it's in the South, you know what that means. That's I'm from the South. Go ahead. It's okay. What we're doing is we're tailoring the experience for them. Now, you can disagree that's the right way, but if you're not on board with the method, it's never going to click with you. It's okay. Keep the lights down low so that people can have a certain amount of anonymity. Turn the volume up so if they want to sing, they don't have to worry about the person next to them. Hearing them, like me. Let me just make something very clear. I can't sing. That's not me being humble. It's just a statement of fact. And I'm going to sing my face off every week. And I'm just grateful that I have cover to do that. I'm grateful that men who typically don't like to engage in emotional environments feel a certain amount of cover to engage here. And we're not going to tailor our content, but we are going to customize the experience. Number two. We help to make people as comfortable as possible in our environments and then help them understand the uncompromised gospel. You know what? I don't want anybody to be offended in our church because somebody wasn't friendly, because I used words they didn't understand and they felt dumb. In fact, the only point at which I want them to feel uncomfortable is when I look people in the eye at the end of every message and say to them, come on, you know you're a sinner. You know you're not perfect. And I want the gospel to be the only offense I don't want to be the offense. I don't want the way I talk to be an offense. I don't want the environment to be an offense. I want the gospel, which at its core is an offensive message to proud human beings. I want that to rattle them. And I want everything else to be able to be absorbed. So we take care to do that. Number three, here's something we know. That a parking team is not about parking guests. It's about welcoming people. And coffee isn't about coffee, which means if you're a follower of Jesus and your coffee experience isn't great, Okay, awesome, sorry, we'll try better. What we're trying to do is, what we're trying to do is make people feel welcomed. Because it's not about parking, it's not about holding doors, it's not about coffee. It's about making people feel welcomed in our environment. It's about saying to them, you can be a part of us before you ever change. Number four, 
we will regularly sacrifice our style preference for the opportunity to begin a conversation and be heard. Now listen to me, parents. Don't be idiots here. This is what you got to do for your teenagers. On occasion, you have to watch what they want to watch, play the game they want to play, listen to the music they listen to with them. And when you do that, you're buying the opportunity to have a conversation. You're buying the opportunity to be heard. But if with your kids you always said, no, 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 we're going to do it my way. I like this music. I don't want that's dumb. Your TV show makes, you know what you're doing? You're just saying to them, I don't really want to hear you. You don't want to listen. We do the same thing in church. We want to buy the opportunity to be heard. Not because the truth isn't good enough on its own, but the truth out here in the air is not what we're interested in. We're interested in a truth that penetrates the heart. Penetrates the heart. And to do that, people have to be willing to listen, take that first step, being in an environment where they know it's safe to consider. So we're going to regularly sacrifice our style preference. I don't like this. Can I be honest with you? I love our worship environment, but I would pick different songs, all of them from the late 80s, that end with most of us crying, and then I'll know we've really arrived at worship. The reason I like that is because that's where I most likely connected. That's where I most connected in my most formative years as a disciple of Jesus. And I have an affinity towards that. But it's no more spiritual than what we do. But what we do tends to reach men in their 20s to 35. And we know that if you reach a woman, it may impact the family. But if you reach a man and wife, it'll change generations. So we have an extra ear to sacrifice our style to hope grip men's hearts. And say to them, you can be a manly man and a Jesus man. And we ask women, if on occasion you have to give in your preference, please give in. And if, I have watched women say, yeah, my husband loves the church, but I don't really like it, and so we're going to find a new place. And I'm like, God bless your heart. Really? Your husband loves it and you don't, and you're going to change? Don't you realize the biggest change in your family that's going to have the single biggest impact on your kids, your grandkids, and their kids it's going to be whether or not your husband is fully on board with the message of Jesus. Women, it's not that you're unimportant. You are. But the dad and the wife together following Jesus is generational change. A woman alone being serious about Jesus, it's an uphill battle all the time. It can still make a difference because you and Jesus is enough. But it's uphill. So we lean in away from our style and we try to reach those that aren't reached. Number five, we're a come-as-you-are church, but we're not a lead-as-you-are church. Yeah, come-as-you-are, be a part of us. And then at some point along the way as you're growing, we're going to call leaders to a very high standard because we know that our moral authority is really all that we have. We can't make anybody come to church. So when a leader around here doesn't lead well, we lean in on their skills. And when their morality doesn't line up, we lean in on their morality. And when their attitude isn't right, we lean in on their attitudes real hard and real direct with love but with clarity. Because when leaders get it, when people who are making church happen get it, everything goes better. Number six, here's something we've discovered. The kids begging their parents to go to church beats parents begging their kids to go to church all day long. So we spend a lot of time and energy in that place down on this side of the room, uh, of the building, and on this side of the building, preschool and elementary and junior high. And we spend a lot of energy and money and effort and resource. And we think that the biggest heroes in our church are our kids' volunteers because they're planting seeds in kids that are going to give fruit for multiple generations. And on occasion, we look at adults and say, I know they're never going to pay their own way. So would you give extra? 
to help pay the way for them because they don't earn money. They can't give in the offering. No, it's just an investment pure and simple because we believe that kids begging their parents to come to church beats parents begging their kids all day long. And finally, we believe that we're a team where every single person in this room and every person that God will ultimately send us can make a significant contribution to inviting others to follow Jesus, which will ultimately lead to what Jesus' primary message is anyway. Repent and give your life fully over to God. That means that you can have a role. If you don't know what it is, honestly, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's time to find it. These are some of the ways that we try to live this out. And it's a challenge. It's effort. It's hard. It's counterintuitive. It takes time. People who believe it's worth it have to invest, not knowing if their investment's going to fully return anything, but hoping and praying that it does. And sometimes it's difficult because we deal with broken people. Sometimes the pastor gets in the way. And yet we're all trying to submit our lives to the one who called us and saved us and then invited us to be the people who invite others to experience the same kind of transforming truth at work in our lives. And it's pretty remarkable. So for nine years, this is what we're trying to do. Pushing people to consider. Pushing people to engage. Pushing people to serve. Pushing people to give. Ultimately, so that people can be in a relationship with the creator of the universe and willingly give their lives to him. We've been doing it for nine years. And we'll do it for 99 more. And some of us will sacrifice dearly and others of us will be hangers-on. That's just the nature of a group of people. But all of us could make significant impact in our piece of the thing and none of us have to do it all. We all need to do our part. And oh, the joy. The satisfaction when I sit around a table with a group of bright and intelligent and powerful people like I did this week. And one of them shares testimony of God's goodness and love and how God used this church in their life. And I think to myself, I'm not that smart. I didn't do that. Obviously, it was the Lord. But it was a group of people who surrounded and loved his family. And one day, he finally said, you you know what? I'm following him. Wow, look how far. Look how far I've come. Thank you, he said. Thank you for unconditional love. So if on occasion a few religious people have to take pot shots, it's okay. They did it, Jesus. But there will always be a group that rally behind the truth, that while religion says change, you can join us, Jesus said join us and change, and they know there's a huge difference. Why don't you grab out your Connect card, and let's take a few steps together. I don't know if you can tell or not, but I'm like rabidly passionate about this stuff. That's why my, my wife and I, my brother and his wife, and the, and the handful of us that started this church, ultimately a hundred before we ever went public, dedicated significant effort, time, and money, and energy towards it. Because we believe that the way Jesus made disciples is the right way. And the way that often religion tries to duplicate it leads to destruction and death. So, let's talk about next step A right now. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, I need to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life. I've been, been, I've been making these steps, I've, but I'm at that point now where I just want to acknowledge that I'm a sinner, and I want him to cover my sin. I want him to lead my life. I'm ready to let him be in charge. If you'll check next step A, and 
In a few moments when we prayed, you can use my words, you can use your own words to say to God, God, I'm a sinner, I accept you. I believe you're the Lord. Would you be the Lord of my life? We believe you can begin a new relationship. You can cross that small step, which is really a huge deal, and begin a relationship with Jesus that will change your life for the rest of your life. How about next step B? You've done that, you just haven't gone public, and you want to get baptized. Check the box, put it in the offering bucket when it comes by. At the end of service, one of our team members will be in touch with you and get you baptized. We'll celebrate with you the change that God has done in your life. How about next step C? I'm going to invite someone to attend 4C with me on September 15. Listen, I don't don't know who you need to invite, but I bet if you pray, God will show you. Just commit right now. I'm I'm just going to invite. I didn't say make them come. Just invite one person. Now, next week, I'm going to show you the change that can happen in a person's life if you do it. This week, I tried to show you why we do it this way. But just commit to inviting one. How about next step, D? Anybody say, I'm willing to facilitate a love does small group, the book we're going to be rallying around to help other people get connected, to just get them connected in a group, a group of people they can know by name, look at each week or every other week, and just, if you're willing to have a conversation about that, check the box. One of our team members will be in touch with you. How about next step B? I have a story of how God used Four Corners to impact my life in a meaningful way. We want to gather some of these stories and let it be encouragement to those people that serve sacrificially. Would you just check the box and let us communicate via email to just get a little bit of your story? Let's pray about these things right now. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, God. Thank you that in my life, while you were calling me to repent, you invited me in all the way before I ever did. And thank you for being patient with me, Father. In the past, thank you for being patient with me now. God, I'm so grateful that we have the privilege of being a part of the team, extending your love and grace to others. God, However you're growing and changing and developing this church, let us never, ever lose our passion to reach lost people. And help us never, ever lose our passion to help people that are found grow in faith. So Lord, I ask for those right now that are committing their lives to you. They're saying, Jesus, forgive my sin. Jesus, be my leader. I pray you'd help them to have faith to begin to follow you on a level they never have. For those, God, that are going to invite somebody, impress on them a name. Give them favor with people. Give them boldness to make the ask. God, as we figure out ongoingly as a church how we're going to continue to love people, give us great effectiveness and power. I pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.